Welcome to Standing at the Edge. I'm your host, Casey Stratton. It's episode two of our new podcast, and a lot happening still in the world. Of course, we're in COVID-19, a pandemic, a lot of emotions around that. I know a lot of people who have kids are really struggling. If you're still having to work from home and you're trying to juggle that and juggle your kids, it's a lot. Um, I don't know if people are going to have it easier or harder now that school is mostly out of session for everybody. Um, but yeah, just really feeling for people. I, myself, I've been doing all right. Um, I, like I said in episode one, if you listen to the first episode, I've gotten more introverted the older I get. My husband and I are both like, hey, do we have any plans this weekend? No? Good. So for the most part, I'm doing fine. I actually did go and see my family on Sunday. It was my sister-in-law's birthday, but I sat outside on the deck and stayed six feet away from everybody. And I wore a mask if I had to go inside to like make a plate of food. And I wore gloves when I got the food. And so... That way I could at least see my family. I hadn't seen my brother since January, and I hadn't seen my mom or my sister since February, so it had been a long time. It was good to see them and just catch up a little bit, and I noticed how much we all talked, like the hours were just flying by because we haven't seen each other in so long. And you'd think I'd be doing more like Zoom or phone calls or FaceTime, but I really haven't been doing as much as I should. I need to do a little bit more of that. Uh, so yeah, my husband and I have just been chilling out for the most part. Right now we're watching RuPaul's Drag Race. I'm into it. I never used to like that show at all, and all of a sudden now I'm just like... Michelle Visage. I'm the mean judge all the time. When I get asked to judge uh, things, especially if there's teens involved, I find that I'm usually the most critical of the judges. And it's usually because I'm with adults who have not worked with children very much or at all. So they don't quite lean in as hard as I do. I found with teaching kids music that you need to be, you need to be honest. I'm not cruel. I'm not mean, but I'm like, oh, I know you can do better. Let's do that again. And I want you to really fix this part or think harder here or do this, do that anticipate all the things that you have to tell kids to do when they're learning an instrument so anyway we watched drag race and i'm just like oh no that's gotta go blah 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 so it's been fun um that's kind of how we're getting through it just tv and whiskey for me and wine for him um lots of difficult conversations around racial inequity and white supremacy i don't know about you but i'm having some doozies especially on facebook um of people um, if you are an all lives matter person or an I don't see color person, I'm just going to urge you to do some research, do some reading, do some soul searching, um, try to understand different perspectives of why people don't want to do that. I, I've worked with so many students of color and they want me to see them. They want what they want to talk about it. They would, uh, kids would always say to me, Mr. Casey, why do you know adults ever talk to me about racism? We, we tried to talk about it and they changed the subject kids know they pay attention so I have a lot of experience talking about race and even I'm having some really difficult conversations so if you're having those I feel I feel you um, if you're a person of color especially a black person of color in this time wow uh, the stress I can't imagine I can't I, I honestly cannot imagine that kind of stress so I'm really I'm pulling for everybody and I feel like as difficult as this is especially happening in an already difficult time it's a really important milestone or turning point or something. I really do feel like this might be a shift toward making things better. And that's going to be through policy change, which political appointees and elected officials need to feel pressure to actually change policy. So the more we have protests, the more we have pressure, and the more we might see some systemic change. Um, I've done a lot of behind the scenes work with systemic 
equity issues. Um, I've seen how even in the nonprofit world, we've got a lot of work to do. There's some even sneakier racist stuff that happens. Um, one of the biggest things is getting rid of this idea, especially with white people, that there's this good and bad binary. Like you're either a good, not racist person or you're a bad racist person. And like racism is a something you commit and while there are people who are explicitly and overtly racist, racism is threaded into almost everything in our society. I mean, I would argue everything. Uh, so anyway, I highly recommend the book White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. If you haven't read that, it's a really good way to kind of start seeing things perhaps from a different perspective or looking at the ways... Uh, as white people, we participate, if, you, if you're white like me, how we participate in systems that are designed to benefit us more than others. And if you're a person of color, how you have to participate in that system too. And it's not always so great for you. So really just trying to keep a level head and have patience. I don't always succeed. Sometimes I just say, forget it. I've, I went to a pretty conservative high school and before I went to Interlochen Arts Academy which is where I ended up graduating from. Uh, but my original public school was pretty conservative. So I have these people who I wasn't even friends with and I haven't seen in 28 years. And they're just coming for me on Facebook. And I'm like, if I'm talking about Black Lives Matter, what about that bothers you so much that you need to argue with me about it? Like, you, we aren't friends. Like, why do you have to push back? Like, that's something I really hope people will consider. Like, if it makes you defensive, why is that? What's going on there? So. Anyway, that's kind of where we are uh, just in these times. So last week I talked a little bit about, well, a lot of bit about um, my cervical spinal issues, my nervous system issues that were causing me to have trouble singing, have trouble playing, and had so much pain that I ended up having a spinal fusion. And I also touched upon in the trailer and episode one that I had two heart attacks. So that's what we're going to talk about this week. So let's dig in. <laughs> So I wasn't always the healthiest person in the world, but I certainly wasn't super unhealthy. When I was younger, I smoked cigarettes, oops, naughty. Um, and you know, I didn't always have the best diet in the world, but it wasn't anything like, you know, I wasn't eating four cheeseburgers a day or anything like that. So uh, in 2017, I was on a vacation in Europe, which is the scariest part of this to me in some ways. Uh, we had just had breakfast at the airport in Cork, Ireland, and we were getting ready to fly to London. And I was fine. I remember standing in line waiting to board the plane and I was fine. And then I put my uh, bag in the overhead bin and I sat down in my seat. And as we were taxiing on the runway, I started feeling really uncomfortable. Like I just couldn't get comfortable in my seat at all. I started sweating. Um, and I felt this weird band of pain, like pressure at the top, almost by my shoulders of my chest. And then my right hand and left hand a little bit, but mostly my right hand started just aching. Like... I couldn't believe how much pain I was feeling in my hand. But it was my right hand, and I had watched too many movies, so I thought, well, if I was having a heart attack, it'd be my left arm. And I have I know I have all these issues in my neck, so I must have pinched a nerve in my neck when I put my bag in the overhead bin. And because I'm so uncomfortable from the pinched nerve, I'm sweating like that. I must be giving myself a little bit of a panic attack because I scared myself at first thinking I was having a heart attack. So... I sat there through the flight, but I was, ooh, I was struggling. I couldn't tell my friend that I was traveling with, Kat. I couldn't tell her because I was like, if I say it out loud, it's real. And we, this flight is an hour long. Thank goodness that's all it was. 
but I was just like, something's really wrong. And I'm like, are you having a heart attack? No, I don't think so. It's a panic attack. You pinched a nerve. Is it a heart attack? No, it's a panic attack. You pinched a nerve. I just kept trying to talk myself off the ledge. But literally, it was what it was happening to me was so foreign and so strange that I was like, do I push the flight attendant button? Like, do I need medical intervention like I was like I'm not gonna be that guy I was on the plane they're like is there a doctor on board I'm like what's happening but you know it's I think it's I'm learning these really human things about myself that I just thought okay ignore it and it will go away so I pushed through that flight when we landed I did turn to my friend and say I don't know if I am having a heart attack or what but something is really wrong and then when we were going through Heathrow Airport, I kept having to stop and sit down. And I was like, I need water. I need water. I never did end up getting any because we didn't find anywhere I could get some. But I was just, I could not function at all. We kept having to stop over and over again. And then when we got to the train platform to take the train into London, central London, I just had to sit on the ground. I was like, I, ha I have to sit down. I can't stand anymore. I can't. I'm like, something's so wrong. Um, why I didn't go to the hospital, I don't know. But I was scared. I was in a foreign country, and I kept having these visions of like them having to call my family in America who didn't have passports at the time and be like, hey, your your son is in the hospital in London. I just, I don't know. I thought, okay, I'm just going gonna, gonna to rest. So we got to the flat where we were staying, and I slept for like five hours. And I remember it was so uncomfortable. I could only lay like on my side, and I had to put like a pillow underneath my chest area, like kind of sling, sling, like what's the word, slinging my arm over it and I just didn't feel good at all but then after I woke up I felt a little better we went out I had a Prosecco I remember that <laughs> this outdoor bar and we were kind of tooled around a little bit had dinner and then uh came back to the flat and you know went to sleep whatever so then the next day and this is what's crazy to me in retrospect the next day I walked 22,000 steps because my phone told me we walked all over London shopping like I shopped all day and I did notice that when I would walk for a little bit of a length of time I would feel the pain coming into my right hand again so I was just like this is super weird I don't know what's going on but my hand hurts again I gotta slow down uh, and then I woke up the next day we flew back to the states actually to Canada and then I drove to the states and I was fine so I just chalked it up to, well, that was really weird, but I guess I must have pinched a nerve and had a panic attack. And then I guess the pinched nerve just made my hand hurt because I did know that the nerve damage in my neck was messing with both hands. So I think it was kind of a logical thing to think. In retrospect, this all will make more sense. But I went on with life. That was September of 2017. And then in November, Two months later, I was going to a party with a friend and we had parked the car and we were walking to the house and I started feeling the pain again in my hand. And I started feeling a little bit of the pressure at the top of my chest and I just didn't, it was very faint, but I was like, hmm. So I told my friend like, this is kind of like what happened to me on the plane and in London. So she was like, do, do you need to go home? I was like, no, I'm good. But that whole day, it was a Sunday afternoon kind of party thing. And I, that whole day, I just, something fell off and I went on with life. It was fine. Monday, I was fine. Tuesday, I had a really tense staff meeting at work where my boss, who I didn't get along with very well, really like laid into me in front of a bunch of people. And I was really stressed out. And uh, I woke up in the middle of the night that night with the same thing that happened on the plane. Really excruciating, intense pain. I had the terrible pain in my hand. So I got out of bed and I came downstairs. I wasn't married yet. Uh, came downstairs and I had this codeine that I bought in London because in London you can buy codeine mixed with ibuprofen over the counter 
So I took that because the pain was so intense and so that I could get some sleep because I was supposed to go to a conference in the morning and then lead a training in the afternoon at this conference. So I wake up in the morning and I'm like, there's no way I'm going to the conference, but I will try to go and actually do my session in the afternoon. So I slept because I hadn't slept much that night at all because this happened at about two o'clock in the morning. So I get in the car and I drive to the university where I'm going to do this conference and I am trying to get from the parking lot into the building and I have to keep stopping and stopping because I'm like walking is just too difficult. It's too painful. It's causing me a lot of pain in my hand and my chest. Uh, and I'm just like, what's going on? So I go upstairs in this building where I am and I'm, I kind of found a little hidden place to sit down and I had to just like collect myself. And then I went and did the training and I said to my colleagues, I'm like, I feel horrible, but I'm going to fake it till I make it. I'm going to do it. And I led a whole training on like the science of music for youth development workers uh, and then came home and went, you know, basically just had to rest the rest of that day. It was a Wednesday. Thursday, I get to work and I can barely walk. I'm like trotting along like I'm 95 years old and my coworkers convinced me to go to the urgent care. So that's like kind of like not quite the emergency room if you're not in America in the States, but it's like where you go if you have something that could be potentially an emergency. It's cheaper than going to the emergency room. Oh yeah, because you know here in America we have to pay for everything. Um, and that's gonna be come up a huge part of my life. I, I finally found out what it's like to be chewed up and spit out by the American healthcare system and how it can ruin your life in some ways. So um, anyway, I go to urgent care um, they have when you check in like these protocols in place if you look like you need immediate care like if you're panicky if you know it looks like you could be presenting with cardiac symptoms and they kind of saw as I was checking in because I had to give them all my information that I was in good shape so they took me right back I saw a doctor right away and they ran an EKG they did a blood test uh, they did a chest x-ray and they came back and said everything's normal I think you're too stressed out. I think you need to work fewer hours and you just need to be better with your work-life balance because you say your job is very stressful and you have a not great culture. It's pretty negative. You don't get along with your boss. So you just need to find a way to, to relax. But we're going to order a stress test, but it's going to take however long because of insurance. So I had to wait because it had to be authorized here. I had to wait a week and a half for that test, maybe even two weeks, because I think I went to the urgent care on November 14th, and then I had my stress test on November 28th. So yeah, it ended up being two weeks. So during that time, I kept a pain log, and when I read back, re read it back to myself now, I'm like, what was I thinking? But again, I just kept thinking, it's gonna go away. And I remember my mom saying, like, do you think something's going on like with your heart? And I was like, no, nobody thinks it's cardiac you know, like a cardiac issue. My EKG was fine. My blood test was fine. My chest x-ray was fine. So I'm hobbling around for two weeks. can literally barely walk. I look back and it's like excruciating pain from 6.30 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. Can't walk from the couch to the bathroom and back, which is literally in my house, like 10 steps. Uh, so I, um, yeah, I mean, everything I Googled said, if you have chest pain for more than five minutes, go to the emergency room. But did I know? And now I'm smarter, but 
didn't go, didn't go. So the 28th comes, I go in for this stress test. It's called a stress echocardiogram. So first they do an ultrasound of your heart. Then they put you on a treadmill. Then they do another ultrasound to see what it looks like after you exercise. So they do the first ultrasound and then they come in and tell me, oh, we couldn't see what we needed to see clearly enough. So we're not going to put you on the treadmill. We're just going to order this other test. It's called a nuclear stress test. I didn't know what that was yet. I know now. Um, they're like, okay, but you know, again, we have to get it authorized because if we book it, if we schedule it now, they're going to charge you full price. Uh, insurance won't cover it. Until, and so we have to wait to schedule it until it's authorized. So I'm like, uh-uh, I can't do this. It turned out later that they had to tell me that because it was nurses and like technicians. But the ultra, the ultrasound showed that my heart couldn't, like it had abnormalities. And so they couldn't put me on the treadmill because I, I couldn't handle it. And I, sh I knew I couldn't handle it. I couldn't walk 10 steps. How was I going to walk fast on a treadmill for eight minutes or whatever it is? Um, mm -mm, that wasn't, so I was glad that they didn't put me on there. But they sent me away. I was with my mom. I said, I can't do this. So my primary doctor was right around the corner from where this test had happened. So I go to my primary and I don't have an appointment or anything, but I'm like, I need to see at least a nurse. So they got me back to see a nurse. The nurse like walked through my symptoms and had this book with her that basically how many did I have to check off before it was like ER time? And I checked more than enough. So they said, all right, go to the emergency room. So we go to the emergency room. Well, actually, <laughs> no, we don't. I kind of knew that it was going to play out this way. So I had already packed a backpack with my laptop and a book and my, some extra clothes and like toothbrush and everything before I let him deodorant, before I left my house, because I had a feeling I wasn't coming home. Because I, I knew at that point, I think on some level, I knew it was bad enough that I, there was no way. Um, so I say to my mom, okay, I know we're supposed to go to the ER, but let's go out to lunch first, because if I get admitted to the hospital, I don't know when I'll get to eat again. And that turned out to be a very smart thing because I didn't end up eating for like 36 hours. So like I talked about last week, I, I was there watching the great British bake off and wondering why I was watching shows about food when I couldn't eat anything. So, um, we go to the emergency room, they do another EKG, they take blood put an IV line in, it took some blood, and then they put me back in the waiting room. So I'm in the waiting room, I don't know, a little, little while, not too long, and then I see someone coming with a wheelchair, and I'm like, that's for me. I just knew it, I felt it in my bones. Sure enough, the guy comes up, his name is Jacob, he says, okay, I need you to get in this wheelchair. Your blood work came back abnormal, your EKG was abnormal, so we gotta figure out what's going on with your heart something's going on with you. So I'm not understanding any of this. I'm like, what do you mean my blood work? He's like, well, you have this enzyme called troponin and it's elevated. So I'm like, okay, fine. So they put me in a room in the emergency room uh, and I, you know, wait like you do. They gave me nitroglycerin right away, which ironically, it's funny now because I've taken so much nitroglycerin, I could like build a house with it, but I didn't know you were supposed to let it dissolve under your tongue. So I swallowed it because it's, it's like a pill. So I just took it and swallowed it and they're like, no, you need to just let it dissolve. I'm like, well, too late. Um, they gave me a full dose aspirin and, um, just kind of monitored me, uh, kept me on machines. You know, they put the heart monitors on me and, um, a doctor came in at some point and said, well, okay, we know something's going on with your heart. We think it's minor. Your EKG, that someone will come talk to you about that, but it's abnormal. So just sit tight. And the doctor was great. He like, I remember he like had hit, he put his hand on my wrist while he was talking to me, which was very reassuring. 
But I'm not freaking out at this point because everyone's like, oh, it's probably minor. Don't worry. So then I finally saw an internist uh, who came instead of the ER doctor and he came in. Uh, I remember this very clearly. My mom had gone to feed my cats. Of course, we sit there for hours. And then the minute my mom is gone, the doctor comes in to talk to me. So I'm all by myself. He says, your troponin levels are elevated. I'm like, what does that mean? He's like, well, if we see it in your system at all, that means you've had a cardiac event. I'm like, well, how high is it? And he's like, that's not how it works. If it's if it's elevated at all, it's bad. There's no like, how high is it? It doesn't work like that. So it turns out that when your heart is damaged, this enzyme called troponin releases into your bloodstream. So that's why they do blood work when they think there could be a cardiac issue going on because they need to see if you've had damage done to your heart. So then he says, okay, let's look at the CKG. He's like, all right, I can see a previous heart attack on here and I can see one within the last seven to 14 days. And I'm like, oh. So I tell him the story about the plane and he's like, there's the first one. And then I tell him about waking up in the middle of the night. He's like, there's your second one. So it all makes sense that I'm like, oh my God, I had two heart attacks. Like what? I didn't, I, to this day, I'm still kind of like, huh? Like, I don't get it. It's so, it was just so outside of my ability to comprehend that that could have happened. So I call my mom and I'm like, do you want me to tell you the news on the phone or do you want to wait till you get back? And she's like, no, tell me now. So I told her she's freaked out. Everybody's freaked out. Um, so yeah, they're like, we're going to admit you. We're going to see, you know, what's going on with you. So, uh, I get admitted and then they tell me they're going to do what's called a heart catheterization the next day, which is where they go through one of your arteries. In this case, it was my groin, which was not pleasant at all. Um, and they take a look at what's going on. And then if they need to do an angioplasty and a stent, if you have a blockage, then they do that, um, if they can. So they tell me this is going to happen. I've, like I said last week, I had never even broken a bone. I had never been admitted to the hospital in my life. I'd had stitches a couple times, like maybe three. That was it. Um, I was the kind of person who just never really, I mean, I had shingles twice, but I went to my physicals and stuff. And then of course I had this stuff go on with my neck. So I was kind of starting to get familiar with being a more high maintenance patient for lack of a better word, but I had not had any really serious health issues. And at this point, I knew that I had an abnormal nerve study, but I didn't even know what was going on with my neck yet. I knew there was something going on and we had a suspicion it was my my nerves, but I hadn't had the MRI yet to actually confirm it. So this is all brand new to me and now I'm in a hospital and I'm on this IV blood thinner and I'm on all this, I'm on a nitroglycerin patch, which gives you like the worst headache you've ever had in your life. And I'm just like laying there and I remember having these really weird hallucinations of like this really dark forest with these like blackbird, like scary raven kind of things coming at me. And it was almost like a cartoon. And every time I was like drifting or like closing my eyes, I kept seeing it. And I don't know if it was the medications or what, but I was having all sorts of these weird like hallucinations. And um, I could not get out of my bed um, if I had to do, you know, use the restroom or whatever. I had to like literally pee into this like plastic thing that they would bring me. I can't remember what's called, a latrine. I think they call it actually, but, um, I, I was not allowed to get out of bed at all because I was in such rough shape that it was too much of a risk for me to move. So I just had to lay there. So the next day, um, I'm brought down to have the procedure 
And I remember being super scared because they, of course, go through the thing saying there's a chance that you could die. You have to sign the paper, blah, blah, blah. It was like 1% chance or something, but you never know. So I, and I, you know, never, I never had a procedure like that in my life. So I'm scared. So I go in, I remember it being so cold in the operating theater. And then they like, oh, and before you go in, they like shave you and stuff. It's super, I don't know, dehumanizing or something. There, everyone was really, really nice, but... I was just like, I can't believe this is happening. And now I'm just like, do what you got to do. Cause I've been and have had so many procedures in the last couple of years that I'm just like, all right, see ya. But I was still a little bashful at that point because I've got people shaving my groin now, you know, not the kind of thing I do every day. So, uh, they do the procedure and I am fascinated. They have this giant screen where everything's happening right next to me. So I like, they gave me what's called twilight. So one, they thought I'd fall asleep and two, you're supposed to forget what happened, but I don't for some reason. Every time I have these procedures, I'm fully aware of what's happening. I can have conversations. Um, now they they usually give me enough fentanyl that I go to sleep because I've done seven of them. But at this time it was my first one and I was just like, tell me what's happening to show me, what is that? That's so cool. And they were like, we've never had a patient be so enthusiastic about this before. <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm like, I don't know. I think this is super fascinating. Like, I was just like, this is so cool. And then I wasn't so scared either because I was just like, wow, this is crazy what they can do. So anyway, long story longer. Turns out I have a 99% blocked LAD, which is your widow maker, what they call it, and a 100% blocked right coronary artery, which supplies the blood to your lungs. So no wonder I couldn't walk. They're like, we don't know how you could live. Like, so all of a sudden it went from emergency room something's happened with your heart but we think it's minor to now what's classified as two massive heart attacks because of the blockage being that severe so it turns out i had there are two kinds of heart attacks i had the kind that's not as dramatic as the movies like i didn't collapse my heart didn't stop um it's more of like the kind of heart attack you can push through it's still not great i wouldn't recommend it but um either way it doesn't matter which kind of heart attack you have the long-term prognosis is the same like they're both equally serious it's just the kinds we usually see on tv are more dramatic and i didn't have that kind i had what's called an n-stemi i think that's what it's called it's been so long now um so anyway yeah they got two stents put in and then um they sent me on my merry way and then I remember I had to lie flat in my hospital room for eight hours or something like that. Six hours or eight hours. I had to lie completely still, completely flat on my back. They had to take the bed and make it completely flat. And for the first hour, this poor guy had to come and put pressure on my groin because you don't want to bleed out. So he had to literally sit there with both of his hands, like he was giving me CPR almost, but just put pressure on my groin area. I'm like, well, this is intimate. So yeah, definitely a crash course in craziness. But what's interesting is that the nurse, her name was Liz, and she was the best. And every time I see her, I give her a big hug. Um, she made me feel so much better and just reassured. And she really helped me through the recovery. I was so starving. She finally got me some smoothies and like fed it to me through a straw. Um, and my family was there and my dad, I remember saying he, I remember him saying he felt so helpless. Like everybody felt helpless. They didn't know what to do. Cause I'm the strong one. Like that's the role I play in my family. Like I'm the one that you want around in a crisis usually. And so it was me having the crisis. So I don't think anybody knew how to respond very well. Um, we all kind of got used to things as they move forward and I'll talk more about post heart attack life <laughs> next week. But, um, 
yeah, finally um, got sent home, got put on a bunch of medication. Uh, they told me to take seven to ten days off, which I did. Oh, yeah, here's the other thing. So this is how workaholic I was. Uh, and I say was, and I'll talk more about that in a future episode. But um, when they came in and told me that I had had the heart attacks, I said, how many days of work am I going to miss? Like, how is that my first response? And I remember checking and sending emails in the hospital, like the day of my surgery before I went in. I'm like, in retrospect, I'm just like, why did I, none of that mattered. I found out we didn't get this giant grant and I had to tell my boss that and through email, I was like, oh no. So I had a coworker do it for me. Um, but yeah, took some time off work, completely changed my diet. Uh, I went really, I like hardly any sodium for a good year and a half. I could only have 2000 milligrams of sodium a day, which is a teaspoon. And if you ever look at how much sodium is in stuff, it's really hard to stay under 2000 milligrams a day. I now can have salt back because I improved. Um, but they wanted me to lose weight. I did. I ended up losing 25 pounds. I've gained about 10 of that back, but it's COVID. So I'm not going to be too hard on myself. Um, and I've been married for a little over a year, so you know how that goes. Um, weight gain is normal. But yeah, I drastically changed my diet. Eventually, I ended up going vegan, and then I brought uh, seafood back into my life. And now, to be honest, during the COVID time, I'm eating some cheese. Um, but not for uh, forever, just for now. Um, I've had to really learn how to balance quality and quantity of life kind of situations. I've had to make a lot of really difficult decisions. Um, that's going to be next week. So let's talk about that. So next week, we're going to talk about my life post-heart attack, all the changes I made, car going to cardiac rehab, all sorts of stuff. And then we're going to talk about a pivotal conversation I had with my friend, Sean. I call my best straight friend or my straight best friend. No, my best straight friend, Sean. And uh, it ended up changing my life. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what it's like and how my identity completely changed after I went from being the like pretty much a healthy-ish person with some spinal issues to two-time heart attack survivor. Really, wow, changes your identity quite a bit when all of a sudden you feel like you're a sick person versus a healthy person and the identity of feeling weak or feeling like, what did I do? How did I do this to myself? Uh, there are all sorts of feelings. I, for the first couple months, my emotions were all over the place. I was lashing out at people. I was super irritable. All these things I'm finding are very, very common after heart attacks, but it hadn't happened to me. So I can read every article in the world or listen to NPR and hear about it, but until it happens to you, you can't really wrap your brain around it. And I still kind of can't wrap my brain around it. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. I'm going to see you all next Thursday, well, virtually, by voice, by podcast platform, wherever you get your podcasts. Hopefully it's there. It's on Apple Podcasts. It's on Google Podcasts. Please feel free to subscribe if you want them to automatically download your phone or your iPad or your computer, and it will be ready for you every time we release a new episode. So please stay safe and stay well during these times. Please take care of yourself. Remember that self-care is super important. You can't pour from an empty cup. So take care of yourselves, and we'll see you next time.